You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. thank John Everhart for that powerful solo this morning. Are there a few amens that could be uttered by you folks to that great song he sang? As you know, as you may remember, that's the text I used last Sunday, Psalm 27. I was thinking about that song in my mind, and I didn't know John had planned to sing it, so it was a good echo of what you heard last time. As to what you'll hear today and for some coming weeks, perhaps the last words of the song we just sang are a good entree. The words, as long as life endures. Maybe I could have used that even as a title for this series of messages that I begin today because I'm beginning to look at the solemn and yet ultimately wonderful subject of death and what is beyond it for Christian and non-Christian alike. Now, it's August. You're all in a relaxed mode. Maybe you would like a subject that would be sort of more pleasant or somehow more encouraging, you think, than to be asked to think about death. But for some time I've been contemplating what I would bring to you next, and I felt very strongly that I wanted to develop this subject, which was a Sunday school class taught about eight years ago. And I expanded it. I desire to go forward with looking at some of the hard as well as the wonderful realities of what the Bible says about death and beyond. I'm very convinced that the church somehow underplays or, or dilutes these things as we talk about how to live in this world. And if we would not speak clearly as the Bible does about these subjects, we would be failing in our duty to the gospel. This morning I begin to try to paint for you a, a, at least an initial concept of where Old Testament saints were in their thinking about the grave or death and and what was past it. And I look to the book of Job with you to two different passages. I'm going to begin a little bit earlier in chapter 10 of Job than the bulletin indicates. I'll begin reading at Job 10, verse 13, at a time in the deepest trouble of this man who you may recall was a great sufferer and was questioning before God, addressing God, praying, arguing, why is all this happening, trying to figure it out. He's talking to God as I pick up the text of Job at verse 14 of chapter 10. Job says, if I sinned, you would be watching me. You would not let my offense go unpunished. If I am guilty, woe to me. Even if I am innocent, I cannot lift up my head, for I am full of shame and drowned in my affliction. If I hold my head high, you stalk me like a lion and again display your awesome power against me. You bring new witnesses against me and increase your anger toward me. Your forces come against me wave upon wave. Why then did you bring me out of the womb? I wish I had died before any eyes saw me. If only I had never come into being or had been carried straight from the womb to the grave. 
Are not my few days almost over? Turn away from me so I can have a moment's joy before I go to the place of no return, to the land of gloom and deep shadow, to the land of deepest night and disorder, where even the light is like darkness. Now we want to add to that text a little bit further on in the book of Job words that seem amazing if I tell you it's the same man speaking. We're going to try to understand that today. But it was indeed Job who was speaking in chapter 19. Listen, beginning at verse 23. Oh, that my words were recorded that they were written on a scroll or inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. This is the Word of God. Father, we ask as we consider solemn subjects of eternity which no man has visited and returned to tell of, you must tell us of these things. Your Son, the Lord Jesus, is the key to all this. We pray that you will speak according to the truth of of a gospel that really does endure for eternity. Amen. I think it was about at the age of 12 that I became fascinated by cemeteries. Now, you probably know I'm a little bit weird. And you would say to yourself, any 12-year-old who's fascinated by with cemeteries has got a good start on being a weird adult. But I remember the occasion. One day I was staying with my grandparents in the summer, and they told me they wanted to go to the large rural cemetery, and it was quite a large one and an old one, where their own graves were for a future day, and their family members were buried, their parents were there, And so they were going, as many folks did, especially in those days, maybe more than today, to take flowers to those graves and spend some quiet time there. And they took me along. And I think they felt a little apologetic, like, well, a 12-year-old won't be interested in this. We, We can't stay too long because he'll want to be done with this. Well, I watched and listened as they showed me graves of ancestors I had not known about. And then I wandered off on my own to leave them to do what they were doing and wandered through that cemetery. Now, I was a reader as a child. I read stories of many heroes, heroes of the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. And lo and behold, I discovered a marvelous thing. Here in this cemetery were graves of Revolutionary War soldiers and Civil War soldiers. This just grabbed me and arrested my attention, and I kept looking around and walking around and looking at 
tombstones, some of which were crumbling or faded that they couldn't be read very well. And I read Scripture verses on some and poems on others and added up dates of birth and death and realized here was an infant who died at three days of age. And over here was a 17-year-old, and I wondered, what was he like? Well, how did, why did he die so short a time? And over here was a young mother who may have died in childbirth, and I wondered what she was like. Well, the long and short of it was that day my grandparents had a hard day, hard time prying me out of that place. They were amazed at how interested I was in the stone sentinels that stood above the silent dust of so many hundreds of once living human beings. At the age of 12, I did not have a guess that later as a pastor I would have frequent business burying many people in various cemeteries in various parts of the United States. Nor could I have guessed, nor my grandfather have guessed that day, that 26 years after that I would be the presiding minister as he, his body, was placed in that grave there in the family plot. Today I begin, as I've told you, a planned series of sermons, not on one book of Scripture, but on a topic. And I call it, After Death, What? Eight years ago, I taught this subject in a 12-week class. Perhaps a few of you remember being part of that in the winter of 2002. I can never forget it because the very last week of teaching that course brought into my life and my wife's life, one of the greatest tragedies we've ever experienced as friends, a family of five, were in a terrible car accident which left only the little seven-year-old daughter alive, parents and two sons, both killed, very dear friends of ours. And God just seared on my heart the importance of the subject. And now I'm going to try to expand it Not in 12 parts, but I'm planning 20 or more. And with a break for Christmas, we'll go right into winter with this subject, Lord willing. You can organize it in your mind if you want to think of it in terms of four large subtopics. The biblical teaching on death itself. The biblical teaching on judgment. The biblical teaching on hell. And the blessed ending topic on the heaven that the Bible reveals. Now, three of these four subjects are extremely unpleasant, so maybe you want to know the schedule so that you can miss it all and come when I get to heaven. I'm not going to tell you that, except to tell you you'll have to miss almost the whole fall. There are some taboos for polite conversation in American society, and death and judgment and hell are certainly near the top of the list. It is said that King Louis XV of France years ago issued a royal edict that the word death could not be pronounced in his presence, nor could anyone talk about death. All his subjects were told, I do not ever want to hear a word about death spoken near me. I don't know what the penalty was, but he made it very clear. As far as I know, King Louis XV certainly died. His prohibition didn't stave off his own death. And no matter how determined you might be not to think on such topics, you 
And every single person you know on this earth will one day die. Death is going to claim you. That marvelous machine we call the human body, the greatest engineering marvel in all of creation, despite all the efforts of modern medicine to stop it, to slow it down, to to keep it at bay, is going to succumb to death. It's going to stop and cease all functioning in every single case for every single person in this room today. And yet there are millions of people who live as if they will continue on this earth carefree forever. I think that when the Beatles are talked about as a musical group of this past generation, many want to say they pull out John Lennon's song, Imagine, and say here's one of the greatest at least in a philosophical way, of the Beatles' songs. You know that song, at least the younger ones of us do. I'm still one of the younger ones. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. That was Lennon's creed. And his theology, I would say, holds a great appeal for many today. Live for today. Don't be depressed by all those religious myths people tell you. You can't know if they're true, so why be bothered with them? The Greek philosopher Epicurus said it long before John Lennon. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Enjoy what you've got. Hold on to it. Prize it. Live it, and then you're gone. Well, despite all the attempts not to think about it or to hold it off from your thinking, death is undeniable. The graveyards keep filling up. I pass by the Mennonite Cemetery at the corner of Landis Valley Road and Oregon Pike daily. And in my 15 years as pastor here, I've noticed, I've commented to my wife, I said, that cemetery's filling up, isn't it? It's really filled up a lot since we've been here. The day will come not too far away when there's no more room, and they'll have to find somewhere else. Astonishingly, even evangelical Christianity has at least greatly diminished its proclamation and its teaching about the biblical hope of life beyond death in Jesus Christ. We have seen pulpits of America now concentrate much more often on how to live a fulfilled life today, how to have a better marriage, how to manage your finances, your career, your child raising, your relationships, all very worthy subjects, of course. But woe be to any pulpit or any church or any ministry that sees those things as more important than the truths of eternity. So I turn us to the Bible, which considers death not by denial or escapism, but with great clear-eyed reality and God-revealed truth. And the focus of Scripture is that we can live for eternity in the light of Christ and in His resurrection victory, hoped in and assured before our faith, we have a great trust and we walk by a sure light. I begin today with an attempt 
and it has to be extremely brief on a wide subject that we could spend weeks on, to show this, how the Old Testament often portrayed the far side of death as a very murky mystery. Now, this is a case where the Bible's principle of what we call progressive revelation is clearly seen. There are many Scripture truths that aren't fully shaped the minute they're revealed. In Genesis or Exodus or Psalms, they're revealed, you might think of it almost in a seed form, and the flower, the the plant that you're going to understand is only going to come much later. That's very true of the Old Testament doctrine of eternity. God reveals more and more insight across the centuries, layering truth upon truth, and it really took the New Testament and its full and complete revelation to make sense of what was beyond the grave that was only dimly understood in the Old Testament. I remember actually being shocked in seminary Old Testament courses at hearing how sketchy was the picture of eternity that Old Testament believers had. I suppose I was, as a young person, I just thought, well, everybody understands heaven and hell and the return of Jesus to history and all those things. Well, wait a minute. The Old Testament folks didn't understand that at all. They had a future hope that was, at best, quite tenuous. For many of them, it it did have to do with God and, and an idea that God would do the right thing and take them home somehow, but somehow was the important word. They didn't have it sketched out very well. And it took the keystone event of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to bring the flowering of understanding that we have today. Now, as we consider this Old Testament doctrine of the far side of death as a murky mystery, we need to look first at Job 10. When I read a portion of it for you there, I chose this because I believe this might represent, or at least is close to representing, among the most pessimistic passages in the whole Old Testament about death, especially pessimism about death spoken by a man of faith. And Job was a man of faith, without a doubt, severely tested, sometimes almost losing it, but he was a man of faith. He was a sufferer here in perhaps one of the deepest valleys of his spiritual depression. If you looked at the beginning of Job 10, I didn't read the verse where he says, I loathe my very life. I hate my life. It's a horror to me. I don't understand it. And then through this chapter, he pleads with God in prayer to try to make some sense out of the harsh suffering he has seen. In verse 18, I read that when he said, Why, O God, did you even bring me out of the womb? Why was I born? I can't make sense of that. And then in verses 21 and 22, he speaks of what is most immediate in interest to us, of the idea that he will go, quote, to a place of no return, to a land of gloom and deep shadow, to a land of deepest night and disorder or chaos, where even the light is like darkness. This sounds an awful lot like Psalm 88. Do you know the uniqueness of Psalm 88? It's the only psalm that has no clear note of hope or faith in it anywhere. 
as a believer is suffering and praying in the midst of his suffering. And the final line of Psalm 88 is, and darkness is my dearest friend. Wow. Can a believer get in that state? Well, he can because the writer of Psalm 88 was a believer reaching out to God and and not in that immediate sense or immediate moment finding him. And here's Job, we know, a man of faith, who uses four different Hebrew words for darkness in these verses, sort of piling one on top of the other to make a cumulative effect of the fact that death for him was a suffocating oblivion. Now, unfortunately, as you know, I read normally from the New International Version, and I'll fault that translation this morning, for choosing throughout to substitute the word grave, you see it at the end of verse 19, for the term in Hebrew that it should have preserved and that some translations do preserve, Sheol. Sheol is the biblical name, the Old Testament name, for the land of death. In the minds of believers of that age, it was a place. It was the place where God gathered the dead. And the point I want you to understand today is that when they spoke of this, they were just speaking of one great reality that might have somewhat different understanding depending on whether you were a wicked man or a godly man, but it was one reality where all those who died would go. Numbers 16.13 refers to some who died under the direct wrath and judgment of God in their death. In fact, their death was God's judgment on them. And it says in Numbers 16, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them alive into Sheol. Obviously, people who were objects of God's displeasure and punishment. And yet, Genesis 25 tells of Abraham dying as an old man, honored full of faith and full of years, and it says he was gathered to be with his people, to Sheol. David in 2 Samuel 12 speaks about Bathsheba and his son, who you recall died right after birth. And David speaks of going to his son in Sheol. Another place in Job chapter 3, 17 and following, paints Sheol there, and Job is in a different mood, He paints it as a place of rest where he says prisoners experience freedom and slaves are no longer under the tyrannical rule of masters where masters and slaves are one and the same. The small and the great, he said, find their differences leveled in Sheol. The word Sheol is used 66 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. If you're superstitious about numbers, that's interesting because six is the number of man. And 66 times is kind of curious to me. I don't put any great importance on it. But it's interesting that that's the number of times that we read about Sheol, this, this great reality of a gathering place into which all the dead are swept. Psalm 89, 48 asks about it in a rhetorical question. What man can live and not see death? Or what man can save himself from the power of Sheol? The point is that the Old Testament, at least at these early stages, had in mind, in the minds of God's people, one master destination after death. Now, 
it appears that dead souls who would consciously exist there would experience either blessedness or perhaps suffering. That's the the strange mixture, that they were in one place experiencing different things. But in the best-case scenario, that even saints of God who were faithful people who trusted Him, the more or less the best-case scenario they had about Sheol was, well, somehow I'll be at rest in God. I don't know what its architecture will be like or, or its geography or anything about it, but God will take care of me. That was about the best that anyone knew as they thought about the land beyond death. Old Testament saints saw these things dimly. Hebrews 11 says they saw their destination as from a far off distance, but yet they walked toward it in faith and trust in God. Their concept of eternity was mysterious at best. Job may have been among the most pessimistic here in Job 10, but he wasn't alone in not understanding and being threatened by what was past the grave. Now, secondly, I want you to see that as Old Testament saints thought about death, there are exceptional Old Testament passages that are like shafts of sunlight predicting blessedness and life with God after death. I've painted a somewhat dim picture, and it it has to be painted, of Sheol, and we could have gone into a much broader study and cited many more references on that. But there are other passages that do have some positive affirmations of confidence and hope in the Old Testament about life after death. And you would know one of them because I spoke about it a couple weeks ago, Psalm 23. Why do we love it? One of the reasons we love it is because it speaks about dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. Very positive, very attractive picture. Psalm 16, 11 would be another that speaks about eternal pleasures that will be at God's right hand. One of my favorites is Psalm 73, where the psalmist goes through a faith struggle and envies wicked people who seem to be doing great and have no troubles or anything else. But finally, he wakes up to reality and especially to eternal reality, and he says, hey, I don't envy those people anymore because they're going to be gone. Their lives are like a mist. They're on a slippery slope. They'll be ruined. But he says then triumphantly in Psalm 73, 24, you will guide me by your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. And so whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? And having you, earth has nothing that I prefer. Well, I won't elaborate on those positive passages of hope, but those are just three of them that that do indeed lift a real believer's scope on what's beyond. Certainly, you've all seen calendar pictures at some time in your life, and maybe you've also seen it in nature itself. That rare time when we're having maybe a thunderstorm that's very localized, And somehow there's a break that occurs in the clouds and the sun comes down. Photographers love to get this on calendars. A shaft of sunlight coming down and maybe shining on a farm when all around it is gloom and dark and and maybe the, the rain is still coming. Well, if you can visualize a picture like that, I would say to you, you should think of Job 19 
as being exactly that kind of a picture in the Old Testament. I wanted you to see the extremes of Job seesawing back and forth in his wrestling with God as to what is beyond death, giving you the very gloomy picture in Job 10, and then almost without any warning coming out of nowhere comes something in chapter 19 that certainly is one of the finest sermons in the whole Bible, certainly in the Old Testament, and certainly at this early time because Job lived earlier than than just about anyone else. We can't even pin him down for a date when he lived, but he was very ancient. And he comes to this time when he breaks out of his pessimism. And we think that God had to have given him these words as he almost stands on his tiptoe and raises his arms to heaven and shouts, I know! Here's what I know! My Redeemer lives! And in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. If you don't mark anything else ever in the book of Job, mark those words. They are words that have no human explanation. For how is it that something that so exactly corresponds to the way of gospel salvation by our risen Lord Jesus Christ, who will give resurrection bodies to his people, who will stand in glory when he returns upon the earth, and we who, as this text says, have had our flesh destroyed, yet in our flesh will see God. There's nothing in the Old Testament to compare to this. It is the most shining searchlight observation made by a man that had to be given utterance through the Holy Spirit to a man who probably didn't even fully understand what was coming out of his mouth. And I tell you, the key term that Job uttered here is the word redeemer. It's an interesting little Hebrew word for study for a moment. The word is goel. Goel represented a particular thing in Hebrew understanding. A goel was your kinsman. Might be a wealthy uncle. It might be a brother. Somebody who had substance, who had power, who had influence, who could basically take care of your family and your estate and maybe the disarray that you might leave when you died. The person you would probably appoint to be executor of your estate. You might remember Boaz helping his relatives, Naomi and Ruth. Boaz was a goel for Naomi and Ruth. He brought some of his wealth and his influence alongside this widow and her daughter-in-law, and help them out of what would have been an absolutely impoverished existence. The goel was the person who would pay any price and exert his power to restore what a kinsman had lost. Now, Job knew that he was helpless to obtain eternal rest. He's already confessed that in saying, as far as I'm concerned, my understanding of death is blackness, oblivion, chaos, and nothingness. 
If it's going to be different at all, it's only going to be different because a goel provides what I cannot provide. A kinsman redeemer comes. And is this passage not absolutely amazing that what he describes fits in our perspective, looking back from where we are in biblical history, it fits the role and the person and the accomplishment of Jesus Christ down to a T. That Job's living Redeemer would one day stand on the earth and he as a man in a renewed body would shout for joy as he beheld him. This has to be a gift of prophecy given by God to this man. What a wonderful gift that he could step for those. And, you know, his difficulties weren't over because chapter 20 and and following, Job has more to struggle with. He's not done. But in the midst of this comes this shaft of sunlight when he says, I am sure that the Goel, whom my God provides, will pay my death penalty and I will reap the benefit. And he could say, as a man who lived in the Old Testament past, speaking of an event that was far future in the timeline of history, my Redeemer lives in the present tense. Not will live someday, might live, I hope, I hope. He lives. He's the living God. Now, there are critics who warn us in their all wisdom, Old Testament critics who say, ah, we must not read back into the text of the Old Testament, a New Testament theology of Jesus Christ. But I'm sorry, I must side with those who ask, what else are we supposed to think? What else are we supposed to think? When an Old Testament voice identifies with specificity and exactness all that Jesus was and did. I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand upon the earth. Well, it's a wonderful thing to see that God didn't leave Job in that pessimism and despair that he had to work his way through. But in conclusion this morning, I want to suggest quickly a couple of practical lessons we can take, even from the Old Testament view of death, with all of its, its sketchiness and murkiness. And you might be inclined to say, well, I'm a New, New Testament Christian. Just give me the New Testament. It's got all I need to know. It tells me of Jesus. I don't need the Old Testament. But maybe that's rushing to the end objective before you go through the process God wants you to go through. And one lesson I think we can learn is that God can use our fear, even our terror and despair in the face of death for constructive ends. I'll tell you, I hear the testimonies of every new member who joins this church. That's now hundreds and hundreds of testimonies I've heard here as pastor. And it's quite frequent when people tell me of coming to Christ as a child that they will say, and sometimes they sort of laugh when they say, they say, well, (laughs) You know, I suppose as a seven-year-old, what I was really responding to was I was scared, I was scared to death of going to hell. And, and their laughter means, gee, that wasn't a very good reason for receiving Christ, was it? And I'll say, well, it shouldn't be the complete reason or the only reason you ever understand for coming to Christ. But you know what? Fear and despair in the face of death is a constructive motivator that God does use to open people to see the wonderful life that he offers them in Jesus Christ. And so 
Sometimes in the midst of deep grief or loss of a family member, we face our own mortality head on, and we might feel like we're in the kind of despair Job was in and say, what meaning does life have anyway if this has happened? But God can use that. He can bring you through that. In Job's case, I think there was self-sufficiency and self-reliance on him that was like stubborn layers of old paint that had to be, you know, when you burn paint off because it, it, you can't scrape it, it's so tough, you have to burn it and soften it up, and then you can scrape it with a tool. That's what God was doing with Job. Burning and scraping off the self-reliance of this man until facing total spiritual bankruptcy, he would throw himself in dependence on God alone. In a similar fashion, Paul once wrote in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, Paul, we don't know what the crisis was exactly in his life there, but he wrote and said, we were under great pressure beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life and indeed our, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened so we would not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. Paul said, God used that terrifying experience to throw me back into his own arms, stripping off my self-reliance until I had no arguments, no self-sufficiency, only a radical trust in God my Savior. A second quick lesson might be found here. Maybe it can be summarized by a human proverb I heard once that said a simple bit of wisdom that when you're lost in a bog... Look for solid ground. Well, if you're lost in the bog of what death is and what's beyond it, look for solid ground. And don't look for solid ground created by human beings. Look for the solid ground of divine revelation. There's a whole industry out there. I could take you to Barnes and Nobles or Walden Books or any of these places and and within minutes go to shelves and pull off dozens of books in which people have created their own fanciful, conjured-up ideas of what heaven is beyond this life. Sometimes they base it on so-called near-death experiences or their own intuitions. Listen, Job only had some solid ground under his feet when God gave him that shaft of sunlight revelation in Job 19. And I urge you to look to the revelation of God for sure truth, not the speculations of men. Finally, this. Take confidence in the fact that even this ancient man, Job, in the earliest time of Scripture, was given the one true insight that you need to have, and we'll certainly have more to say about it as he looked to death and beyond. We're going to see in coming weeks from other passages how God plans that there will be a great division among human beings one day. And your place in that final last day judgment is fixed at your death. The spirit of our age scoffs at that idea, but the judgment of God is a sure thing, as sure as God himself. Everything about God must be a lie if he will not have final justice in his judgment. And therefore, dying with a sure knowledge that you have a kinsman redeemer, a goel, like Job could speak about, who will powerfully act for you, makes all the difference. 
Job knew he needed such a one and that he had such a one. Are you foolish enough to think you are the one human being in all of history who does not need a Redeemer to buy and influence what you cannot buy for yourself? Jesus Christ was the Redeemer, Job prophesied. He has already exerted His vast power in history to pardon sin and break the handcuffs of death for those who belong to Him. And you will either answer in judgment to a holy God one day without Him, without an, a, a go-between, without an influencer, without a mediator, or you can say by faith today, before that inevitable day comes that death calls for you and your body is taken to occupy a place in a cemetery or be scattered as dust on some field, you can say now, I know that my Redeemer lives and He shall stand on the earth in the last day and in my renewed flesh, in my resurrection body, I will see Him. That's the most splendid truth the Bible could possibly hold out for your faith. And despite all the pleasures of remaining alive in this world, I say with Job, how my heart yearns within me for that splendid destination. Our Father, teach us in the midst of the joy of living to not be foolish or denying or ignoring the grand realities of the future. Despite all the darkness and the pain that death can bring, show us the shining thing that you have done. Build our faith. Increase our hope. And yes, even our desire that while we don't want to leave this earth, we know the one who awaits us and the one who has accomplished what we cannot do for ourselves. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus' name, amen.